0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And
1: I'm David Bernheisel.
0: Let's jump into the
1: news. Xdoc version 0.29 is out, and this one has a big transformative new feature, I think. It's a new cheat sheet feature. Say that a bunch of times fast. Uh, so cheat sheets are markdown files with the .sheetMD extension. So that's how xDoc will know how to render this differently. So what, what are cheat sheets? You've probably heard of them, but they're just nice, digestible little recipes of code that you can do with your library, with Elixir, with xUnit, with whatever you're trying to talk about. And they've been around on the internet for quite a long time, probably even before internet. You know, right? Uh, but there's a big place called DevHints.io where you can find a lot of like community-generated cheat sheets, and there's there's Elixir ones up there now, even. So the work was heavily inspired by that site. So where can cheat sheets be helpful? Well, if if your library has functions and common use cases and maybe recipes or something along those lines, it's probably a good idea to go upgrade Xdoc to zero point twenty nine with this new cheat sheet feature, and then create a new cheat sheet for your library. So I can think of a couple of examples just for my own, but it's just, again, quick, digestible little recipes of code and how to use your your library or or the framework.
0: Yeah, I can think of a couple examples. Like if maybe the library was around sending emails, there might be multiple examples of here's how to do a recipient and a subject and a body. Here's how to do an attachment. Here's how to do blind carbon copies. You know, all those kinds of different use cases could just be nice little snippets there. So I think it's really cool. And I I'm looking for ways to how I might start leveraging that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I feel like in general, library authors do a good job of having good docs and examples, but sometimes they don't. And this would be great if they did have a cheat sheet, right? It's just like convince everyone to put it in the same spot. Next up, Phoenix Live View Storybook has published a new video demoing 0.4.5. It looks like it's coming along really well. And we're kind of wondering if this is going to be coming in the new release of... Phoenix, we'll have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, if you're interested in learning more about the Phoenix Live Storybook project, you can check out episode 117, where we talked a lot more about that. And next up, a GraphQL smart cell for Elixir Livebook was developed. This was actually one of the SpawnFest submissions, and this one was done by Michael Crumb. It looks really neat. So the SpawnFest GitHub repository has been submitted for the competition. It's a very short window. So really they focused on getting it working and getting that done, like just getting across the finish line. And then they said now that that's done, they do intend to keep going and add more features. So that'll probably be done as a, a separate repo or something outside of the Spawnfest competition, of course. But that'll be another neat thing. Like if you are in an organization where you use a lot of GraphQL, then having a smart cell that makes it easy to make API calls and assign the results to variables could be really handy. At the time of this recording, we don't yet have the winners announced for SpawnFest. So we're still looking forward to that. And we will certainly share that when we we learn.
1: All right. Next up, the uh, WhatsApp team released a new tree sitter grammar for Erlang. This is pretty cool. So if you haven't heard of TreeSitter, TreeSitter is a progressive parser for languages and turns that syntax into an abstract syntax tree. And this is helpful for navigation. This is helpful for, for syntax highlighting in your editor. I think most editors nowadays use tree sitter except for VS Code because it has its own thing that it does. But TreeSitter is, is pretty cool, too, because uh, TreeSitter is also used by GitHub. To do code navigation. So, this could be seen as a step for GitHub to adopt it and provide those little code jumps. If you know what that is when you're browsing code, Erlang code, or you can do it in Elixir code, if you hover over a function, GitHub will pop up a window where that function is defined. And so, that doesn't exist today for Erlang. And now, possibly, it can because they have a, a tree sitter grammar. So we got a couple of links that show you where, where the treesitter uh, grammar is, but this is pretty cool. Lots of cool stuff happening out of the WhatsApp team lately. Uh, they, they've also done the Equalizer project for Erlang.
2: So pretty cool. Next up, we saw a tweet of someone talking about a great developer experience they had in Elixir. And we wanted to point it out. If you haven't tried, mix hex outdated. What it does is it gives you a nice little diff view of the version you're on, what the latest version is, and if there if you should update or not, or if there's an update available or not. Depending on the pins in your mix.exs file, it will tell you if it's a major and you need to look at it before you do the upgrade, or if it's a patch or a minor and the update is available and should have no breaking changes we will remind you though that not everybody follows semver so you should usually just briefly go over that change log before just firing off that update command but this is a really nice developer experience type that command and see what's available keep your libraries up to date i might be wrong here but i think we have todd residek to
1: to think for that feature so thanks todd for for doing that
0: and next up this is a strange one that came out of strange loop so Strange Loop was a conference that happened recently. It's a developer conference, but there's also designers and everyone. And they recently celebrated the conclusion of the whole Strange Loop conference legacy. And this was the last one. But in this conference, there was an unusual discussion and presentation. It was about LiveView JS, as in the Live View API. That we know on the server, but implemented in JavaScript to run on the server. That that's just kind of like crazy. So David, you saw this. You're the one who caught this. I'd love to hear more. Like what what were they doing here? What is this about? Just
1: know what you know about Elixir and Phoenix Live View. Right. You write in Elixir. You create your components. You create your live views, and then we know that we have a socket connection that sends updates to you know to the front end and patches patches new new changes and such. Right. It's that experience, but it's all implemented in JavaScript. So it runs on Bun or Dino or Node.js, uh, any of those those server-side JavaScript runtimes. But it, it was cool because, well, it's, it's interesting to, to see like what I normally see in Elixir, but in JavaScript. So things like functions like handle info, handle event, handle params, mount and render, like all that's in JavaScript. It's just really, really interesting. I take this as a sign that like we know the powers of of Elixir and we know the powers of like this and the simplicity of, of Phoenix and and LiveView. And we've been talking about it for years now at this point, right? So it's just really cool to see that that is not limited to Elixirists like us. JavaScript folks are appreciating this as well. And so they're creating their libraries and they're inspired by the, the simple APIs that that LiveView offers. That's just really, really cool. The documentation site is also ramping up. It looks quite nice. And, and as we know, one of the main tenets of JS is that, well, there's a whole lot more JavaScript developers out there in the world than there are Elixir developers. So this is a good thing because LiveView is transformative, you know, for developer experience. And, you know, we don't want to let language, you know, be a barrier to some folks because whether we like it or not, it is. And there's just simply more JavaScript folks out there. That's pretty cool to really see how Phoenix and LiveView is inspiring the rest of the developer community.
0: Yeah, what I thought was crazy about this is they have this, like on their website, it's JavaScript developers liking the API, wanting to use this, but they don't want to do the JavaScript in the browser. So like their selling point is no client-side routing or state management, no REST or GraphQL APIs, all, none of all that stuff, which you know we've been appreciating when you get rid of the spa. They're still going with the idea, like, we don't want the spa because there's a lot of benefits to dropping that, but we still want to use JavaScript. And they're trying to use LiveView to do it. So I guess my only concern is the name LiveView.js might be a little confusing that someone might think that this is somehow related to LiveView in Elixir. And if I'm looking for LiveView and I want to do something with JS, I'm going to be taken there. That's my only concern, I guess.
1: Yeah, all my Google foo is about to get screwed up, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And, and then another thing to you know to mention, uh, and I'm sure that they'll figure figure things out. But w- we know that Elixir is awesome because it's built upon Erlang, which has the OTP platform. I don't know how they're going to cover those gaps with with JavaScript. I'm not saying it's not possible. It's just that I think that I think that'll be tough to to have that resilience, you know, that that fault tolerance that we're used to. So I'm curious to see how Live JS is going to um, uh, take care of those those issues. And last up in the news, Kip Cole shared a new, fun weekend project creation. So we know Kip from Tempo and from CLDR. He also has a library called Image. Real simple, just, just Image. This library connects with a Rust library, I think called the, or not Rust necessarily, it's, it's a VIPs. It's, not, it's the other big image processing library. Uh, usually it's Image Magic, but this one is VIPs, which is usually faster and smaller. Anyway, the fun weekend project part is that he he added a new meme function, mm. so you you literally just pass it an image called dot meme on it right <laughs> and you pass it in your text and it and it generates the the meme format for you, so that's pretty fun, and it's inspired me now to. Implement a meme function in all my libraries. <laughs> 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 just to have some fun with it. Anyway, it's pretty cool. Uh, cause it's not just purely, you know, make for, for, for fun. It's actually a good showcase of, uh, his image library, just doing simple transformations, right? Take an image and do some, uh, chroma keying. Now you can remove like a green screen background kind of thing. You can overlay that on an, on an image. Now you can add text like meme style on top of it. Anyway, it's just a good bit fun and we love Kip. So. Pretty cool
0: library. Go check it out. And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by Fly.io. You know, LiveView has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what Fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and Fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out Fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Zach Daniel. Zach, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So Zach, this is a great little reunion episode. It was back in episode 27, which was December 22nd, 2020. So coming up on two years ago, where we had you first with us and you talked about ASH Framework.
3: Yeah, it's exciting to be back.
0: And so we wanted to come back and have you share what's going on with ASH Framework 2.0. Because one of the things I just wanted to call out is I think it's super impressive that you have stuck with something a personal project, a passion project, perhaps that you've stuck with it for that long because you were going long before we even started and had you on about almost two years ago. and now you've still been going and and now you've reached this major milestone of 2.0 and the the framework has grown quite a bit. and we want to get caught up with you on what has accomplished and transpired in that time and where you are today and the, the kind of celebrate the milestones, but also think about you know where are you going? like what what are the plans? But before we jump into all that, I'd love to hear more about
3: you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So I live in sunny St. Pete, Florida, with my wife, two dogs and two cats. So it's it's quite the zoo. I work for an Australian company, Alembic. They're an agency, so they work, you know, globally. And they have brought me on to work on Ash Framework for the bulk of my time, which is quite nice. And I am a principal platform engineer there, so uh, my job is... is Sort of the systems that connect a lot of the projects and the the tools that they use to to take from project to project to allow them to achieve you know higher than average you know velocity because they have this this excellent toolkit.
0: So Zach, I recall seeing something you shared on Twitter a little while ago where you had joined Olimpic as a full time employee, but that you're also having sponsored time. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that arrangement where you are actually still
3: working on. Ash framework as kind of sponsored time like what does that look like Yeah so I mean in reality we're still we're still sort of figuring out exactly what that looks like it's a pretty new arrangement it's been a couple months now but there's sort of two ways that it it works right the the main thing is I'm a supporting element for all of their projects that are using Ash framework and you know even supporting in the rest of the stack because I'm quite familiar with the rest of the tools that they're using for building their projects but the other thing, too, is a sort of high-level consulting is available, right? So for people who are going to be using Ash or just, you know, not using Ash either, right? I, I can I can go either way there. But, you know, my job is often to help provide architectural consultation, you know, the initial planning phases, and then to sort of be across the execution of a lot of different projects to make sure that they sort of fit well with our tool chain and, and that they're supported, that kind of thing. But... It is still kind of a work in progress to figure out the right the right balance of of time and, and you know kind of like where I, I can be most valuable. So I'd love to get a little bit of a recap on how you first got started with Elixir. Like
0: what languages were you using before Elixir that perhaps even inspired this idea to even want something
3: like Ash? So I was I've I've been kind of a polyglot before Elixir. I've happily written almost entirely Elixir since I started using Elixir, which is quite nice. But before that, you know, I did Ruby, Python, JavaScript. Those are sort of the main three to some Rust. We had at a, a job, I don't mean, I'm kind of time blind. So I don't know, six years ago now or something, I'm not sure, but we had a, a Node.js server that was using RethinkDB. Oh, baby. Yeah, I know, right?
2: <laughs> I used that database.
3: Good times. <laughs> it was rough. We knew we needed to migrate to SQL and specifically wanted to migrate to Postgres, but the business wasn't bought in on switching to Elixir and Phoenix you know, they weren't really fighting it, but they were like, eh, you know, we don't really know Elixir or Phoenix. They gave us a project to just build out the, the Postgres schema, right? And what we did is we wrote it all using Phoenix generators. So we just had an API for this schema, like automatically. And, you know, most of what they were doing re- mapped pretty much straight to sort of crud stuff, right? Like it was a very smart front end, very relatively straightforward back end. And so we, we accomplished the task in less time than it would have taken if we just like written or it may be equal time if we had just written a bunch of SQL statements. But we also had an API and we're like, hey, you know, we could just use this as a kicking off point for actually switching to uh, Phoenix and Elixir. And it worked. So they, they bought in and, and we kind of did the switch over. But for me, the real thing that convinced me that Elixir was something I really never wanted to leave and kind of started my career as an Elixir developer was we rewrote this Python service that whose job was to synchronize data from RethinkDB change feeds, which is like you get this live streaming. It's kind of like Firebase type thing where you get all the events happening on the underlying data store. And it was synchronizing RethinkDB change feeds over to Postgres. And the Python, I mean, it was it's basically just like one big wall loop, like or like, you know, wall true loop. Just and and it was so brittle and it always broke on like, like Friday at 6 PM and it was just, it was the worst thing I ever made. And we switched to Elixir. The first gen servers I ever wrote was for this project. And I felt quite guided, right? Like Even though I was still learning about process linking and all these other things. And I was still able to sort of muddle my way through to get a, an implementation where every table was an individual gen server. Right. And it would link to tables that it had a foreign key to. Right. Because there's no foreign keys in RethinkDB. So that was one of our big problems is like, uh oh, you know, that thing doesn't actually exist. You can't put it in Postgres. Right. And so it would link to the things that had a foreign key to or kind of the other way around things that had a foreign key to you. And then you'd start them when you were up to present day with your data right and so what was really great is if one of them crashed or something like that things that would reference them would also go down until that one had got back up and synchronized its data and honestly i i don't know if we ever had an issue with that like it just whatever did go wrong it just kind of it figured itself out spun itself back up and 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 moved on and i was in love like from that moment on it was a, it was a pretty big moment
0: that's cool the whole self-healing aspect of of systems is something that i think I think that's one of the reasons why Elixir seems to be adopted by people as a second, third, or fourth language is because they've gone through these other experiences and they realize I really value resilience and the ability to heal in my systems. And if I don't have to figure out how to do all of that and I can just lean on something that does it, man, that saves me so much hassle.
3: Yeah, I mean in all reality Elixir could be 10 times worse as a programming language and I would still choose it just for the underlying uh virtual machine, right? Like it's just a very awesome perk that I also love writing the Elixir programming language itself. I don't know, I would write like assembly if I had the same runtime guarantees in doing
2: so that I get, you know, with the BEAM VM. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just happy to hear a fellow person using RethinkDB that just makes me happy deep down <laughs> to share that experience with someone. <laughs> Shared trauma? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we we had a similar story. We that wasn't our launching into Elixir, but it was definitely a thing that we bounced right out of real fast. Good times.
0: I'd love to jump into Ash Framework. So for those who aren't familiar with what Ash
3: Framework is, can you give an introduction? explaining what ash is has historically been a difficult task honestly kind of like in the same way of you know explaining what do you use a programming language for right it's like i don't know all kinds of things right it's not you know it's like elixir could be used for x but that doesn't mean that it is for that thing but we've we've started to nail it down, especially because now that I've been brought on to work on it full time, they want me to be able to explain what it is. Um, that's kind of a, a prerequisite.
0: You have some uh, some marketing minded
3: people, right? Who can say no? Well, let's let's narrow this down. Let's let's tighten what, it up. What do we
2: put on the budget?
3: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'll I'll read something off here that I have. So Ash Framework is a declarative resource oriented application development framework for Elixir. A resource can model anything like a database table, an external API, or custom code. Ash provides a rich and extensive set of tools for interacting with and building on top of these resources. By modeling your application as a set of resources, other tools know exactly how to use them, allowing extensions like Ash GraphQL and Ash JSON API to provide top-tier APIs with minimal configuration. With things like filtering, sorting, pagination, calculations, aggregations, pub sub, policy authorization, rich introspection, and much more built in, including a comprehensive suite of tools to allow you to build your own extensions, the possibilities are endless.
1: So let me let me repeat some of that in my own words, make sure I understand. So like the idea here is to generalize. Uh, well, you're calling them resources. So instead of me writing an ecto schema and then writing the the CRUD actions for them and, you know, re- rewriting can, can, can into Elixir for authorizing what I can do with that, I should just use Ash, which will normalize all that kind of stuff and make it uh, a declarative way to specify it instead of like baking my own code up.
2: So do you still have to, like, build the schema up front and then the rest comes for free? Or where, where's the entry point into Ash? One of the
3: early inspirations was I was using Ektos schemas back, you know, back in my first initial work with Elixir. It was such a cruddy API, right, that we were building. And I was like, I want to be able to put next to the schema field is this in the API? Because that's really all I needed, right? It was just a straight through, right through. And I'm like, if I could just add that one little config, then I could use the Ecto schema to run the whole thing, right? And obviously, Ash is not like just a couple options on top of an Ecto Ecto schema. But that mentality that you can have one declaration that powers multiple layers, like the declaration itself has layers, right? Like an Ash resource, if you are exposing it over an API, there's a section specifically to map that API to your resource, right? So we're not just saying like, it's not all in one really mixed up configuration, right? But that, so that is kind of the way it is. An Ash resource is basically a superset of an Ecto schema that comes with additional configuration for what is the interface to this? What are the actions that you can take on this resource? That kind of thing. A lot of times what people see when they look at Ash is they see like the nouns. So they see like, you might make like my app dot post and you define some attributes and then they see like a restrictive CRUD tool, but, MyApp.Post with a bunch of attributes on its own does nothing in Ash. There's nothing you can do with it. What's more important is the verbs. So you create a set of actions and actions define the interface to this resource. And in some cases, that's just create something in the database table. But you can have a resource that calls out to an external service or triggers an event or even just runs a calculation and returns that the value of that calculation to you, you can use it for valid, just data validation, right? So by default, a resource with no data layer is just going to run the rules of the resource and return you an instance of the resource itself of the struct, right? So you could use it just to validate you know, user input if you wanted, that kind of thing.
1: Gotcha. So stop writing
3: boilerplate is what I'm getting out of that. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. One of the most important things though, is the consistency of the interface allowing a bunch of different tools. They know exactly how to use it. And they know what to expect, right? So Ash GraphQL and Ash JSON API, adding, like I can have, not the most people really want to do this, but simultaneously run a GraphQL and a JSON API for my data that behaves exactly the same on both sides, but is conventional for those two separate platforms. And those tools know how to call into my resources and how to run the actions that they've put on the API and all that sort of stuff. And for policy authorization, a great example is not only do you get the policy authorization piece, but there's also a utility called CAN, like a CAN question mark utility that it's it's a, a tool that what you can do is you can run a pre-flight authorization rule without actually doing anything and say like, is it possible? Like maybe possible, because sometimes you don't always know. But is it maybe possible that this user could succeed in, take, in running this query or using this action? And so what people are doing is they're building, it's kind of a new pattern for UI where if there's like a create button they'll hide it behind a could this user potentially call this create action and if they couldn't then they just hide the hide the button so there's a lot of really powerful tools you can get from it
1: yeah and i'm hoping that the server also asks the same question
3: <laughs> that
1: oh, user yeah, yeah, can
2: yeah. do the thing yeah not just hiding the button the server just trusts the ui that's the way <laughs> yeah yeah
3: yeah we ex- we just there's a little parameter you can send from the ui that says ignore authorization no no um and actually prefight authorization is never fed back into the the system and like used in any way it's it still runs all your authorization rules so i've used a, a tool that
1: sounds like this i know ash is quite different one of the problems I've had with a declarative system like this are the escape hatches. So let's say that I am, I am, uh, I want to define a resource which is backed by an Ecto schema on the in the database, right? And I want to expose a JSON API for this resource, and I need to do an update action on it, but I need to do the update action in a strange way that is not very conventional. How would I do that? Does Ash allow me to have an escape hatch for doing something? probably stupid
2: (laughs) in my update action (laughs) and maybe it's not stupid but it's more like it's different it's not you're not following the golden like crud path
1: yeah because there's always there's always those things that like the business says like no we got to do it this other way or or i got to bend to a legacy system that's probably it you know like where they just didn't do it this way I'm, i'm porting this old php app into you know into into elixir and phoenix and i want to use ash but i gotta i gotta have this 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 json look
0: <laughs>
3: like it used to so we don't have breaking changes you know sort of one of our guiding guiding principles is is the framework should be able to do anything not everything right so the goal isn't to have like a twiddle or knob or or feature for everything you could possibly think of doing it should have avenues to uh, accomplish those things that whatever is custom to you and everybody's app is a snowflake otherwise you wouldn't be making it like if it worked exactly like a different app and and if it was if it did everything that like i could possibly have predicted an app might do then it's unlikely that you really need to make that app right <laughs> like so you know there's a lot of different escape hatches for something like that specifically right the basic thing is that an action you have a bunch of ways to to run custom code. So like if you have an update action and it's called like, maybe it calls out to an external service to get the data that it's going to use for an update. And then maybe it would decide to actually create something instead of updating that and return the thing it created, right? Almost like a reverse upsert, you know, like an update that might actually be a create. And so what you have is an action has essentially like a plug-like structure. And so you attach what's called a change and that module takes an Ash change set and, and like the options that you configured and you you can do anything you want, right? You can do something, you can add before hooks and after hooks to the change set to do things after with the result of the action or to intercept before it happens. And so that's like the basic way that most people are adding like custom behavior is is like that. But then you also have the option to mark an action as manual and a manual action has some requirements. You, you have to put a, spes- a change on it that runs an after action hook that will Actually produce the results, so the after action hook is like, okay, the change set worked like, there's no validation errors on the change set now do something with this change set because after
1: all it's still a framework it still has to go back into your into the ash code
3: right exactly so that's like the high the one level up of escape hatch is like I'm going to just take control of this whole action I don't want to try to compose change modules or plugs or whatever i'm just just let me do this right those are the two kind of main escape patches and there's there's actually even like lower down escape patches like there's there's hooks to modify the data layer query for read actions for example so you can just like you get an ecto query and then do whatever you want the other kind of philosophy we have is like we don't want to try to force people to shoehorn things into a pattern that doesn't make sense for it right so like things keep working if you create like if you have a resource it's also an ecto schema It's like, we also, we define an ecto schema for that resource. So if you just want to like repo dot insert, like you can do that. It's not nothing. It's not going to break anything that Ash does. And and so people will often do that. Like we don't have bulk actions, for example, like you you can't do update all that's, that's on the roadmap, but it's definitely one of those things like you're going to need ecto still, you know, we don't try to hide that fully from you. We're just trying to take that 90% of your application that can fit nicely in this pattern and you get all these nice benefits from doing it. And then the rest, you know, you have elixir. It's the reason it's not like a no code platform or something, or like a low code platform that I'm trying to like that I that like is hosted or you know, I mean it's 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 running as a, a library inside of Elixir so that you can do whatever you want to do.
1: Well that that sounds a lot better than the plat- the the stuff I was using before. Yeah, I I would always get super frustrated. Like the, the escape hatches were just inflexible <laughs> or non existent. But you're right, like there's 90% of your app, which is going to be mostly the same kind of stuff. I literally have to copy and paste so much of my code from app to app to app to app app because it does a lot of the same stuff. It's just different domains, different contexts. But, you know, I still have to still still do a JSON, you know, API, still have to do like the simple crud actions, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, Ash sounds like a good way to uh, remove that boilerplate. still allow me to extend it to do crazy, sometimes stupid, <laughs> sometimes legacy things. <laughs>
0: so Zach, if people go check out the ASH framework readme and they're looking at examples of like, what is my code going to look like? One of the things that they're going to see that you know I, I see when I look at it is, this talk about the, the resource way of modeling data and i just think that's a very different way from what people if you if they've been in the elixir space they've been doing phoenix apps and using generators and and they some variation off of what's generated for them this is a very different look to what they're probably used to i'm just curious like what kind of feedback would you have to to say why that's a good thing or i guess the concern i think people might have is Am I actually writing a Phoenix app anymore, or is this like an Ash app where it, it's so different that it impacts everything that I do?
3: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I'll kind of start maybe a little bit lower level here, which is one of the things that's very interesting about the Elixir, the general patterns that we use for building Elixir applications is different than a lot of other you know programming languages or ecosystems, is Ecto. So Ecto, I think, represents something that kind of really fundamentally differentiates the Elixir ecosystem, which is that Ecto is—it's probably one of the best pieces of code I've ever seen. I love Ecto, honestly. It's one of the—it's one of my favorite pieces of software ever. But it is extremely low level when it comes to sort of implementing. Like it's—it's it's just a—it's a database driver, right? Uh, or not a database driver, but it's a—it's a, a database interactor, right? It's like sort of wraps what you might do as SQL. It's extremely low level. And people don't generally use any higher level data abstraction in Elixir, right? So they'll have like uh, maybe Phoenix Contexts or sort of just modules that might interact with Ecto. There's no sort of modeling layer in between typically what they're doing. And I think it's one of those things where Ecto is like so good that most people never reach for the higher level concept. But I do think that is actually a missing piece in our general application design patterns for Elixir because what ends up happening is massive amounts of of rewritten code and and the the problem for me is not I don't care about just duplicate code what I care about is that everybody's doing it slightly wrong and <laughs> and or or everybody has it's bugs that are unique to them and ultimately when you when you build tools like ash they can do it better than you could ever reasonably handwrite yourself if you're just going to handwrite the way that you do filtering or or you know aggregating data or calculations, right? You're going to do it the easy way to write way first, because that's the right way to build software, right? Write it easy and then optimize it later. So in feeling that need for me personally to have this layer, what I really didn't want to do is I didn't want to build active record, right? I didn't want to have this sort of like map to data concept. I wanted to keep the sort of functional ideas alive and keep something that I thought fit well with the Elixir ecosystem. And that's where resources come into play. So uh, I talk a lot about declarative design and at its fundamental level, declarative design just involves splitting your app, splitting the thing that you're doing, right, into two things. One is a description of what ought to happen and one is an engine that can take the description and do what it says, right? And so, SQL is a declarative language. For example, you don't write procedural querying code. You write what you want to happen, and then SQL has a query planner and executor that figures out how to satisfy that requirement. And that's what what Ash fundamentally is: is the a resource is just instructions right? It's not like a, it, there's no like instances like you would have, I mean, it's not object oriented programming, you know, in the first place, right? So it it doesn't sort of have a life of its own. It's just instructions. So what I might do is I call into an API module. That's what they're called in Ash. You know, uh, I call it api.read and I give it a resource. It's just going to follow the instructions on the resource to return you instances of that record. So think of it like what you would do if you were told, get me back all instances of this ecto schema it's going to do that, right? And and that's fundamentally how it works is the resource has no life. Like it, it's just, a. you can look at it, you can introspect it and get the configuration for what to do. And so, you know, you could write your own, like you could just use resources because it's a nice way to describe what ought to happen in your application. Or you could even just use it as a modeling layer because we have all these nice, you generate mermaid graphs from things and we have a new Livebook generator that will generate like a complete set of documentation in Livebook for your domain. And that's, that's only going to get better. We're, we're going to be having smart cells and I guess a whole conversation, but you could use it just for that stuff. And then you could write your own code that takes a resource and figures out what to do with it because you don't feel like using Ash's engine. You just want to use Ash to configure you know, how things happen. Now, obviously, like that's not the path of least resistance and almost nobody's going to do that because we already have a bunch of tools that work with a resource and figure out how to do what you want. But that's the fundamental ethos, and that's what a resource is. And that's why it's modeled as a resource. It's like something I can interact with or or something I can like use as instructions, right? And that's what a resource fundamentally is. One of the things you mentioned
0: there was talking about how you're able to get this information out of a resource to build some of those higher level concepts of how can I build a GraphQL interface to this resource? How can I build a JSON API to this resource? And I can see like you're talking about how people can just use resources as a way, a higher level abstraction. I like that that distinction there. Cause I was thinking live view, right? Like you're talking about GraphQL, talking about JSON APIs. Well, what if I have a live view app? Does Ash still help me? And it sounds like the whole way of still working with resources still does offer some benefits there. I'd love to hear more
3: about that. When I first started getting users, which which we do have. No, um <laughs> so when I first started getting <laughs> users, I expected for people who wanted to build APIs to gravitate to Ash, because APIs are quite simple to map to a resource pattern. that was the extensions I had written early on were, were designed, you know, to, they just built APIs, but the crux of it is that there is a code API to these resources as well. Like you can interact with them in code in the same way that you interact with them over an API. So like you have in-code pagination utilities in the same way that you have API pagination utilities, all that sort of stuff, right? It's all built in. And, All of the users that started using Ash for the most part early on were using it with LiveView and none of them built APIs. (laughs) What they liked about Ash is that they knew that later when they needed APIs, because LiveView doesn't doesn't remove the need for APIs eventually, but it does remove the need for APIs to start building now, right? It's not like if you're building with like a, a React front end or something, you need an API right away, which is part of one of the massive improvements of using live view is you can just start working on your app without needing to deal with like api contracts between a, a javascript app and your elixir app right and they were all using with live view and so very quickly i sort of shifted gears to building there's an ash phoenix library that provides tooling for working with ash resources specific to the you know what you might be doing with phoenix the biggest one of those is ash phoenix.form ash phoenix.form is a module, it kind of behaves like if you're in if you're building a live view or a Phoenix application, you might make a change set and then say like form for change set, right? And that change set is the data that backs the form. So an ash phoenix.form is the same thing for Ash. But what it does is there's utilities in Ash to modify like deeply nested related data, which is something that people often have to do and is a common, very common pain point for people building things with Elixir change sets in phoenix live view is like okay well i want to have like a sub form with five nested things with a plus and minus button and then those things need to have a sub form with a plus and minus button all that kind of stuff right and that's quite difficult to build but AshPhoenix.form manages all that state for you it's it, it it handles it's a persistent data structure that you keep around as you are validating the form you know, I don't want to get too deep in all that. But realistically, we have a, quite a few utilities that are designed to expose like a user interface on top of Ash, things like ash.filter form, which is a data structure for building like a Boolean filter. So you can say like form for filter and click like add predicate or, you know, add group or style, however you want. And we have ashphoenix.keeplive that will run a query, will integrate PubSub events that Ash broadcasts Re- it'll right now. I think it it does pretty naive stuff. It just reruns the query, but you you can of course intercept the event and have it modify things. But it does things like in a paginated read action, you can figure that new events that would add to the page will only append to the page, like so that you don't get like things jumping around or like if it wouldn't be on this page, it's not going to you know update it, that kind of thing, right? So we have quite a few utilities with working with Live View because most users of Ash are working with Live View.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot. I would just call. Attention to the ash-hq.org website because at the bottom there, there's a pretty good example of most of these things you've been mentioning. I think there's a live view example, there's a pub sub example, there's GraphQL.
3: Yeah, it was pointed out to me that those code snippets do not render on mobile. So for those, I'm, I'm probably going to fix this by the time
2: other people have listened to it. But I, I will, I will fix that. It's true. When I shrink my window, they are now gone. (laughs) (laughs) So Zach,
0: one of the things I saw on Twitter just recently was your wife gave you a birthday cake to celebrate Ash 2.0. I love it when our our non-technical partners get involved and at least understanding something that's significant to us. And even if it's very esoteric, very, very geeky, but I thought that was a great, a great thing. I loved it.
1: She she might be technical, who knows? But the uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I was I was really happy to see that you know you're celebrating a very a very big you know moment in Ash's you know timeline here because 2.0. I, I don't know may, may, maybe I'm misspeaking here and correct me if I'm wrong, but is Ash 2.0 kind of like it's? I know Ash 1.0 happened right, but Ash 2.0 seems like the ver- the first big release, the big like. You know, it's ready for prime time. It's, you know, 1.0 was... It's big enough that the
3: family's involved, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. you are correct. I'll tell you about V1, actually, real quick. 1.0 was an accident. What happened is I just accidentally released 1.0 when I I used a tool to, like, figure out the next version, and there was a bug in that tool. It's actually my tool that I wrote, so I had to fix that bug later so nobody (laughs) else got it. But I just, I ran it, and then I pushed, and it deployed 1.0. I think there's like a 24 hour limit on revoking packages, and uh, I asked the Hex team like 28 hours later if if we could remove this package, and they said no. <laughs> that package was always on the top of the list, even though they were like you know because even if I had revoked it because it was 1.0, so it always you know. And I was like, well, I guess <laughs> I guess we're 1.0 now. <laughs> uh, so
2: we, we rolled forward. I
3: had a I had a, a message at the top of the readme for a long time that said, I know it's 1.0, but it's still beta. And a lot of the Ash users would would kind of mess with me. I'd say, you know, hey, if things are still in beta, and they're like, well, no, it's 1.0, it's not beta. <laughs> so yeah, 2.0 is the, marks the official sort of stable release cycle where things are going to be focused on a lot more. We want to slow down a little bit, not too much. I, I move pretty quickly, and I'm going to keep moving quickly. But we do want to focus, like we have a much higher focus on API stability, pretty much a an ironclad focus on API stability. For me, it's kind of interesting because most users of Ash have been on the release candidates for 2.0 for like multiple months, and so it's when you know the question came up of like what's new in 2.0, which is you know something that we want to talk about, and I uh, I'm, I had to like go back. I'm like, not because none of it's new for my users, like the ones that were already bleeding edge, they've all been using this stuff, like they're all on main, right? In in 2.0 we have uh, Ash HQ, which is which is huge, and it's it's only going to continue to improve. It's basically a sort of stand-in for hex docs that works across multiple packages. So, all of the Ash packages and all of any new package that we add will show up there and be automatically indexed and and you can select your versions and view the documentation as a sort of whole only for all the versions of each package that you use, so you can sort of customize it and along with that is Tons of handwritten long-form prose about why things are the way they are, how they work. If you like, there's there's guides on things from like pagination to monitoring to you know ha- all sorts of topical stuff, as well as revamped getting started guides. And I think that was uh, a major missing piece for people early on. Is everybody that was working with Ash was sort of pioneering, and basically they did it with my help, right? Like they would ask questions on the Discord, and me or somebody else would tell them how it works. And there wasn't really something to to walk them through it. So Ash HQ I would say really is the is the hallmark. It's like I was never comfortable releasing 2.0 without really higher much higher quality documentation. Another big piece is ash.flow. Ash.flow is still young compared to the rest of the framework. So that that is we are still going to be sort of moving forward and adding features to it. Um but ash.flow is an example of the kind of thing that I'm very happy to be working on now. Early on building the framework I'm like look if we if we build these patterns the stuff that we're going to get later is going to be really Awesome. What we're going to be able to do to leverage these declarative resources that we have is going to be the real magic, right? And Ash.flow, I think, is a, is an example of that sort of thing. So it's a declarative workflow. So you know, you basically you add it, you put your steps in, you connect them, you say like this uses the value from that step, and you can branch your steps and to have conditional logic. You can put in custom steps, but there's also a bunch of built-in steps that know how to work with resources, right? So if you say like this step creates a post, it You just have to provide the input and it knows exactly how to how to use that that resource to create one of them. And so you can compose a bunch of resource actions like that. And it all uses the Ash sort of internal engine, which is essentially a graph solver. So it'll it'll run it at like a breakneck pace, running things synchronously when they depend on each other, but asynchronously when they don't There's support for transactions and all that sort of stuff. And the sort of things that you get from that is we, we can generate mermaid flowcharts to show you exactly how this works. You can compose flows so that you can break sort of these complex system-wide actions into a series of, of steps that are individually testable, that kind of thing. And the new, the new sort of hotness is haltable flows, which we're still kind of working out exactly how, you, how people are going to use that to build UIs. But a haltable flow allows you to get the, to get the state of a flow halfway through so some step can say i'm gonna like halt the flow stop here and you get back a halted flow result that you can then rerun with different inputs and so what you can do is you can build like a form wizard for example where the the flow models all the things that you need to proceed at any given step and it halts when you get to like the step that you're you know when you get to the step that you're on and it also produces validation errors for like that specific step that kind of thing so you can store the state in a database and resume a flow later that kind of thing
0: it sounds like what you're describing with like Ashflow is like if I had a multi-stage user signup process or a wizard that uh, required, maybe you submit
3: some documents on this step and then you go through this next step. It's like, it sounds like it's something like that. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's one of the ways you can use it. If you use halting flows, you can also just model... For instance, in Ash HQ, the search is an Ash flow. You do a typeahead search, and, and it, it searches like eight different resources with different rules, and then stitches the results up all back together. And that's modeled as an Ash flow. It didn't really have to be, honestly. Like that could be one, like just a set of queries. But but I wanted, to, you know, Ash HQ is kind of an example for other people, so I used uh, Ash flow for that. So yeah, you can use it just sort of to model like something that needs to happen. It has pluggable executors. So the idea is that eventually there'll be like an Obon executor that will like run the steps as Obon tasks or that kind of thing. There's, yeah, there's lots of quality of life improvements, worked on a lot of better error messages. We have a big focus on compile time errors. So if you've done something wrong, it ought to warn you ahead of time. So you can't compile. We've got observability, so we emit uh, a bunch of telemetry metrics, and also the ability to configure a tracer for Ash to use, and and it will call into your tracer so that you can do things like you know sending your your spans or traces off to some monitoring service, which is is quite cool. I improved a lot of the querying and expressions language. One of the things in Ash that I think consistently people don't realize is probably one of the coolest things until later in, later on is we have what uh, what I would call a portable expression syntax which kind of works the same way you might use Ecto. You'd say like, you know, from foo in bar, and then you have like an expression syntax to represent your where clauses and things like that. We have that as well, but we reserve the right to run it in Elixirland or in SQL or any other place. What you can do is if you have like a full name calculation, for example, that's like first name plus a space plus a last name. If you load that calculation in a query, so you're running a query and you say also load full name, it'll put it in SQL. But if you already have a user and you say load full name, it'll just put the first name in a space and a last name, and it's not going to go down to the database to do that because we know exactly how to do it. There's no need to go to the database for it. That kind of thing is the sort of thing that would be unreasonable to write yourself. Like you're not, nobody's going to write the SQL version and the non-SQL version of every calculation that they have in their system, but you can do that sort of thing quite easily with Ash. In fact, you most people don't even realize that it's happening. It, their, their app is just faster than it would be otherwise, and they don't realize that it's because Ash may not need to go to the database for some things. We've already talked about authorization improvements, but ultimately the the last thing is just API stability. Tons of bug fixes and, and improvements and and reliable APIs.
2: Lots of cool stuff, but overall, going back to your original story, the 2.0 is the new 1.0. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never
0: going to live that down. Well, that's what, I, I'm glad you shared that because that is a hilarious little thing. <laughs> so we're about out of time, but one of the things I thought was interesting is you mentioned that you work at Alembic and they are an agency. And it seems to me that when you're talking about the speed of being able to deliver some of these features that Ash makes a lot of sense, especially for like a, an agency where they're working with a lot of different customers, they have a lot of different needs. So one of the questions I think people might ask is, well, is that right for me in my project? You know, I'm not an agency, I have a project. How does this work over maintainability over the long run? Like, is this, if I pick this, if I'm working on the same system for like two years, uh, is it still as easy to
3: get out the door as it is to maintain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that people comment on the most is Ash lends consistency to your application, right? You you generally speaking, everything works the same as any other thing. You can plug things into each other really easily. And so the design patterns, they keep things quite consistent and changes are are, are quite easy to make. So I think people have had quite a good story on in terms of maintainability. And honestly, like, it's hard to explain, but speed of development isn't really a goal, right? Like, it just is... If it, it follows out from, like, using the right patterns, right? And it's the same with, like, low line of code count isn't really a goal. You just happen... Like, Ash HQ is a, has a full-featured data model that, for searching, it has an importer and all that, and it's, like, 7,000 lines of code. And, like, the Ash resources are, like, 700 lines of code that runs, like, all, the entire data model, right? But it just happens to be that way. It, it follows out from the declarative model this is all
1: great stuff ash looks like a very productive framework but i i know that fortunately or unfortunately i don't i don't know legitimacy is brought upon by its users not just you know the framework saying that it's good at these things right can you talk to me a, a little bit about any example you know users you know tough situations where ash uh, helped them out
3: you know i mean olympic brought me on because they were doing a lot of projects with ash right so they've they've got some really interesting projects they have one called class solver so primary school scheduling SaaS built from scratch in less than 6 months with a team of one and occasionally two devs they're close to launch they basically built sort of a google calendar and, you know it's a sort of pivot table with trello drag and drop functionality and has a very complicated ui and data model and it's all running on top of ash and i would also like to point out that that we the general stack we use we call it staple right which is you know surface tailwind ash phoenix and liveview is quite productive for these things so it's not just ash that makes all of this possible it's it's the combination of all of those tools that really makes a difference we've got uh, vexillum work design Uh, so it's basically the uh, toyota lean production system applied to heavy complex assets so these machines cost millions of dollars per minute when they're shut down it's an extremely complex domain and ui and absolutely is a testament to the power of live view as well as Ash, right? So they they do this work optimization pathing thing. You can you can drag the places where somebody should stand on a machine to perform a specific task, and it will recalculate the total walk time and and like effort involved and safety risks involved in executing said option. And it does all of that live as you drag and drag things around and and move things around. And that's all live view as well as ash backing those calculations. And then in terms of the community, I mean, we've got CoinBits as a sponsor. They've been really great to us. They're doing uh, banking with Bitcoin. And we've got a lot of people building in production, building really cool things. Uh, one of our users, Frank Dugan, consistently leans into Ash. And he actually has his whole own UI extension that he wrote that plugs into his Ash resources that determines how they are rendered in the UI and what pages for them look like and that kind of thing. So he his whole UI is derived from an Ash, an Ash extension, which is quite interesting. It, it doesn't work for everybody, but he has that sort. He's building that sort of app where it's very resource management oriented, right? It's an ERP, and so he can just sort of he gets so much bang for his buck from Ash because just adding some mix in configuration gets him like his entire app. Oh, that's got to be gratifying for you as
0: well, just to hear people using the thing that you've been working on for so long, and they're getting actual real business value out of it. Uh, That's got to be rewarding itself.
2: And then taking it to its limits and not using it how you ever intended it (laughs) to be used.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It it was definitely for me, like I was never going to release 2.0 without seeing people try and fail to figure out how to do something with Ash and then see like how catastrophic is that event, right? That's the reason that it's been so long before a stable release is I needed to make sure that when people had these like crazy wacky things that they could figure out how to do them. And when they really wanted to push the limits that they could, but it is interesting, you know. I'm I'm not the kind of person who wants to push this idea that like everybody needs to use my thing or like my thing's the best way for everything. And so my mentality is just like help one person, right? Like if, if there are people who are building their businesses on this, there are people who are who are making money with my software, and there are people who, I mean, there are people who have told me that the reason that they're using Elixir is because of Ash, right? And I, that sounds I, honestly, that coming out of my mouth made me sound really like I, I'm not. I don't want to get like mushy like that. Like I'm not trying to self-aggrandize, but to me, that's the kind Of stuff that matters really is is actually helping people. And that's why our Discord is a very wholesome place to be. There's a lot of people there that want to help each other. And that's really my goal. Well, I appreciate the time you've taken it to get us caught up
0: with where you've been on this journey and how far it's taken you. And you mentioned there like Discord. I'm just curious, like if people want to get started with Ash, where's the place they should go? And then they're probably going to need some resource, maybe some help. Is Discord the place, or are there other resources they should be aware of?
3: Discord, GitHub, we have a, lot, a bunch of issues tagged Good First Issue to help people sort of hop on if they want to try contributing. I don't consider contribution necessary for being part of the, the community, even a big part of the community. You just using Ash, like letting us know where it works, where it doesn't work, the issues that you've had. A lot of people just build uh, things and share them, like build extensions or or build utilities. But Discord is, is probably the place. Anybody in the Ash community will tell you my sort of claim to fame is that I have like absurd Uh, SLA's, if you want to call them that, on my support. So like people basically like will report a bug and like seven minutes later I've pushed a fix or something, you know, (laughs) and it's, it's, it's cause I'm, I'm obsessive. It's not, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing, but so, you know, you get a lot of attention from me in the, in the discord but there's also a lot of other people. So I would say the discord is probably your best bet if you want to engage quickly, but we're also on Elixir forum where I'm on Elixir Slack on the Elixir discord, as well as the, there's a specific Ash framework discord. The, there's an invite to in on, on Ash HQ that you can get to, but you know, I'm honestly everywhere, everywhere people are doing Elixir. I'm, I'm there. So.
0: All right. Well, Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and, and help me get my head better around what Ash does and where it fits. And, and really what kind of uh, a leverage it can be for projects and teams. So, awesome, very excited about that and congratulations on reaching 2.0 and building the community that you have. It's very neat.
3: Thank you very much. Um you, you guys are always the best to work with. So, uh I enjoyed my my last appearance. I've enjoyed this one and maybe, you know, 3.0 or something we'll we'll have to do this again because <laughs> you guys are uh, always excellent hosts. Well, thanks. But that's all the time we have for today.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.